Well, welcome everybody. I, uh, I'll, I don't know if anyone even knows who I am. I'm one of the small fries here at this thing. So my name is John Lamoureux, and I'm the host of The Hustle Podcast. Some of you know what that is. Oh, thanks, man. So uh, the focus of The Hustle Podcast is I like to talk to the people who uh, have done really interesting things, but you don't hear from them as often. So in some cases, maybe they had one hit or put out one album or whatever it might be. How do you, how do you deal with the transitions in your life, uh, the ups and the downs, and then how do you look back on your career, and um, how do you pay your bills, those kinds of things. <laughs> a couple of the gentlemen we have up on the panel have been guests on our show. I'll tell you who they are. But I'm going to do brief introductions. Starting out here, front man for the excellent... I'm going to not call anything hair metal. We're going to go with 80s rock. The excellent 80s rock band, Tora Tora, frontman Anthony Quarter. Okay. Next up, the man behind one of the most enduring hits of the late 70s, Magnet and Steel. This is Walter Egan. All right. After that, if you don't recognize his beautiful, blonde, flowing locks, then you weren't paying attention. One half of the great rock band, Nelson. This is Gunnar Nelson. Cool. And last but not least, this is a man who's basically a jack of all trades. He's written with a ton of people, worked on a ton of things. His biggest hit, so to speak, might be Celine Dion's Where Does My Heart Beat Now? That's Robert White Johnson. Cool. All right, so uh, I had picked the topic of songwriting because you four mean a lot to me, and if you were going to be here, I wanted to give you a stage to talk about what you do really well and kind of showcase your talents. I added in, after the fact, the collaboration part because I have a feeling some of you have some stories of people you've had to work with or big personalities you've dealt with or whatever it might be. Uh, I personally like to hear rock stories. I don't care if they're good or bad. I don't care if it's music I like or not. I like to hear people's rock and roll stories. So I'm gonna ask you to, to think of some of your favorites that are appropriate. <laughs> and I hope you don't mind, I got my notebook here so I don't forget anything. So for starters, let's talk about songwriting. And Anthony, it's, uh, you're the one closest to me. I'm curious about you and you specifically because um, I always find it easy, uh, interesting to talk to people who are primarily known for one particular genre. Um, you know, somebody who fronts a hard rock band may not uh, be into synth pop or new wave or country or whatever it is. When you're writing a song, you're in your bedroom and you're strumming on the guitar or you're sitting at the, the piano. When you're writing a song, do you believe that the bones of that song, do you think that this is a hard rock song? This is a song that makes sense for me and my band. Or do you think a song, if you believe in it, or you think it's good enough, could be a part of any genre, anywhere? Does that make sense? And I hope everyone is, can talk into the microphones and stuff so we can get it recorded. Just for me personally, it kind of comes from a different place. Okay. Um, I'm, um, you know, the things that inspire you, you want to emulate that. And um, as you started out in the beginning writing, you were just trying to, you know, figure out how to function. You know, really? What does that mean? Explain that. Just your skills. Um, for me personally, my, my family was very musical. Oh. We're from down in the Delta, in Mississippi, 
Um, they listen to a lot of blues and gospel and country. And when I came out saying, you know, I was a rock and roll heavy metal singer, that was a that was a big uh, conversation I had with my family. They were like Southern Baptists. You know, oh, really? And uh, but I was super inspired by my family. Like, okay. The songwriting and uh, they listened to Mississippi John Hurt a lot, which was a, a blues guy that was from down in that area. My grandfather was friends with him. He had this really unique guitar picking style that my uncle and aunts would play. Mm -hmm. And they made it look really simple. And then as I got older and started messing around with the guitar, I was like, man, this is yeah. you know, pretty... Um, you have to have a pretty good skill set to put it on. But um, as far as songwriting, I remember just when I first started playing, just sitting on the edge of my bed, like strumming these chords. And, they ended up becoming uh, a song that was popular in Memphis, you know, in the region thing. And um, I think I felt like it was a torch of all Did that answer your question? Yes, yeah, so I'm sorry. I was being distracted. I guess I'm getting a lot of feedback. Is this okay? Closer over here. I was trying to give you guys the stage. Audience feedback. <laughs> yeah, audience feedback. By the way, we'll try and do a Q&A if we have time in a little while, so if you guys have some questions you want to ask, feel free. Walter, I'm curious about you. Um, you've written some big songs, and like I said... <laughs> Huge. Big. Huge. Um, like I said, I'm curious what, the, when, what it feels like for somebody to watch something that begins with the germ of an idea. Maybe it's, you're, like I said, you're sitting on your bed, and you strum a couple chords, and you think, those sound good together, right? And then it builds from there, and you think, I can, I could maybe write some lyrics to this. What's it like when you're sort of shepherding an idea from the very, the nugget of the idea to something that we hear on the radio? Well, you can take that in the bigger picture as, uh, I got my first guitar when I was 15, and I was, I was bold enough to think I could teach myself to play, so. I had some songbooks, Kingston Trio songbooks to show me the chords. Oh, there you go. And, um, but when it came down to starting to learn scales, I would veer off and thought, oh, I think I'll just work on, I'll start writing songs for some reason. Yeah. And I was most inspired to write a song when I heard the Shangri-La's leader of the pack. I thought, well, here's something I could do. <laughs> I think I could write a song like that. And so I uh, endeavored to do that. And I was lucky enough in high school to have a good friend who was also following the same steps up the ladder. Um, I'd write a song, I played for him, and you know, I'd get some feedback right away, and he'd write one, and I would give him the same feedback. And we've continued to play until this day, actually. We're still in a band called oh, wow. Malibu's together. There you go. We're playing, we're opening for Mickey Dolan's next month uh, in <laughs> California. But, uh, as far as the germ of an idea, you have to allow yourself to believe that this is the greatest thing ever written and this is going to be the most wonderful song that the world has ever known. If only for that night that you're strumming those same C, F, and G chords and going, oh man, yeah, I think this could really be interesting. And then the next morning maybe you could judge it in a more, in a more sober light, but uh, as far as Magnet and Steel goes, I had been uh, signed to Columbia Records to do a six-album deal, and my first album was produced by Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks as Buckingham Nicks. Mm -hmm. 
and so Stevie was pr participating in uh, as mostly doing background vocals, but vocally arranging things. And I think it was her idea to do the the, the duet background mm -hmm. kind of thing on Magnet and Steel. But the night that I was inspired to finish the song Magnet and Steel, I had been working on bringing a, a 50s sort of feel to a song. And that's the thing, as a songwriter, you mentioned genres, and I think that as a songwriter, you can write in any genre you want. And you should be able to do that, and in fact, it's more fun to be able to do that, even to the extent of moving to Nashville and thinking of your own country songs. I mean, it's one of the things I did, and uh, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, that's, my country thing, Actually yeah. goes back to Graham Parsons, which I guess we can answer in a different question. But sure. Anyway, so Stevie was singing backgrounds. I was driving home. I lived in Pomona, and we were recording at Sound City, now famous from the film. And uh, on the 101 freeway, a car pulled in front of me in what we call the pimp mobile. And those days, yes. it had a diamond window, had neon lights underneath it, it had the little fringes around it. And, and then I noticed the license plate said, not shy. And I thought, hmm, well, there's, that's an interesting concept. And I thought it's filled with Stevie. And by the time I got home, I had basically written the, uh, I'm not sure the magnet part of it just came out of the blue. But, uh, wow. But yeah, and then, so, so that was my first album. It, it showed up on my second album. And I had Stevie join in the background singing on that, along with Lindsay and a lady named Annie McClune. And uh, it just you know, happened. And it, it, it was magical, I guess. At the time, it just felt good. But uh, for a compilation that was released a few years ago, I did an acapella mix of it, and I was amazed to to remember that the voices weren't even doubled on that. Really? <laughs> okay, let's stand around this mic and do these vocals. No way. And at the end of it. Uh, I think Stevie uh, goes, well, if that wasn't good enough, we'll do it again. Uh, like, <laughs> Turns out it was be, good enough. Turned out to be pretty well. Yeah, did all right. Enough. But, did all right. But yeah, I mean, and then songs take on a life of their own. And of course, having a record released on Columbia Records is a mixed blessing if, they're, if they have the big machine behind you. Right. And this was 78, of course. I don't know what Sony's doing now, but it's probably the same. You know, they persevere and it loses its bullet for, and then they come back the next week and it's and got up to number eight in September that year and sold a million. But, uh, it's crazy. But at the same time, if they're not fully behind you, as I learned with the next album, <laughs> they, uh, they they really don't uh, plug you at all. Yeah. But, uh, it, it's a, and it's an amazing thing, the life that it takes on in the. Sure. After the recording has run its course, I get people telling me. I got a letter from a lady in Kentucky who told me that I woke up the other morning and your song was on the radio. I hit the snooze bar, and when I woke up again, it was still on, and I hit the snooze bar again. And then I realized that it's really just a clock. It wasn't a radio, and it was God singing your song to me. It's kind of hard to know how to react to that. I mean, God is a tough cover to get. Yeah, uh, but he's apparently a big I was very happy that he, uh, he, he 
chimed in on it. Yeah. The next night, uh, a lady came up to me and told me she lost her virginity to the song. Oh, good. So, you know, it's, yeah. it balances out. <laughs> Serves many purposes. And, uh, Magnet and steel. And, you know, I'm okay. grateful to be a thread in the fabric sure. of your lines. Sure. Okay. Well, so, Gunner. Yeah. Obviously, I did. You're probably sick to death of talking about your dad, but let's put it. Not at all. No, 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 no. Okay. Bring on. Good, good, good. So, in your case, obviously, your dad, Rick, Ricky, legendary songwriter. You, I'm sure, grow up watching his what he's doing, and it, it's influencing you. Your music's very different than your dad's. Um, were you? Is this a? What's the What's the division between talent versus passion or drive? I mean. It obviously came to you, you know, genetically. Uh, Would well, you feel like even from a young age, like this is what I was meant to do? Well, absolutely. My, my first, my first memory, actually, my first conscious memory was watching my father perform. I was sitting on an apple crate side stage at Knott's Berry Farm. They had a uh, theater there called uh, the Good Times Theater, yeah. right, with a water curtain and a whole yeah, thing. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm a kid from the '70s. By the way, my dad loved Magnet and Steel. We actually <laughs> talked about that song in particular. And if I don't, I don't want to interrupt. But one of the thrills of my life is when I was in. I was compared to your dad in one of the reviews of my record, and I thought this was the greatest. That, you guys, What's better? Do you guys know each other? Did you? I met him at Sound City. Oh, okay. Yeah, just briefly. That's and by the way, Sound City was a dump, but it sounded great. It really it exactly. sounded yeah. great. I think this wasn't some palace, you know. Was, yeah. But great Neve console. Anyways, um, you know, my first memory was was actually of watching my father perform, and I made that connection, and I kind of went, "This is great." I mean, he's happy, and the audience is happy, and this is the greatest job in the world, and I want to do that. Yeah. And uh, and what's cool about growing up in a house like that, you know, his music. He had two phases of his career that were really distinctly different. The, in the early years, when he was Ricky, he had uh, professional songwriters writing his material for him that yeah. he translated. And boy, I mean, out in California, everybody was doing their thing at Sun Records in Memphis. But he was working a television show five days a week, and so he couldn't travel. I, I got to talk to Sam Phillips of Sun Records about a month before he died. He said, you know, we tried to get your dad on the label, but Ozzy was too smart for us. It wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. But we kind of always regarded him as kind of a, a, our adopted kid brother. Cool. You know? And they all got along really well. But what that served to do is all those guys from... Uh, Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, and Ricky Nelson out in California were making viable rock and roll, but it was very different than what they were doing in the South. They, they weren't coming from the blues. They were coming from more of that whole pop folk thing right. and that, that country thing. And um, much like everything that happened out of the Troubadour years later, it was a scene and it was, it was really different. I grew up in that. I grew up in the second phase of my dad's life when he was putting the Stone Canyon band together in the pool house down the hall. Yep. And you know it's amazing to, to me because it's just great social proof. You know, I think a lot of a lot of kids who want to make music from the time they're really young, it's kind of a pie in the sky thing for them because they have to use a lot of imagination. For me, it was like coming from a family of plumbers who just wanted to plumb. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was always around, and it was great social proof that it was possible. Yeah. But my dad's music was always different from his father's music. Our our grandparents, actually, Ozzy and Harriet, were in a big band. Yeah. And they had a number one of their own in 1935 with that stuff. Our dad had his number ones. He had uh, Traveling Man and Poor Little Fool. Mm -hmm. And then we had ours. So it's the only family in history with three generations of number one That's hits. Incredible. But very different styles of music. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, our grandpa Ozzy was always a writer. Our father wasn't a writer again in the beginning. But I had this, uh, this great gift from him when I was growing up and I started to play. I started playing when I was six. 
And I remember those early conversations where he realized I wasn't going to quit. He'd go on the road and stuff, and they, they finally bought me a drum set because I was persistent in driving his drummer crazy. And he'd come off the road, and I was still out there in the hayloft above the barn doing my thing. And, and then he, he realized when, when my brother and I actually wanted to do this, he said, learn from my career. And there's one, well, two things i got to tell you. One, keep your sense of humor because in this business you're going to need it. Yeah. And as the years went on, of course, I really started to learn what he meant. Sure. And then the second thing was, he said, you know, also learn from me and realize that I would give away all of the number ones that I've had that other people wrote for just one more garden party, which went to number five. Yeah. Because that was a part of him. So he said, if you're going to do this, you know, please realize that you can go to any town and find someone who looks better than you, plays better than you, sings better than you. But if you write a song from your gut that uh -huh. connects with people, they're going to come to you for the rest of your life with that because it becomes a soundtrack of their lives. Right. It was the greatest, the greatest advice. So my brother and I started out writing from the time we were kids. Yeah. And uh, when all the other kids in junior high and high school were playing cover tunes, uh, we weren't. We were playing horrible originals. <laughs> but over time and, and repetition, you know, you uh, and influences, you, you hopefully get better at, at what you're doing. Okay. And, uh, and everything's really, really kind of changed. I wrote our first Nelson record as a collaboration. It was my brother Matthew and uh, a writer named Mark Tanner. I'm going to ask you about him. And, uh, and myself. And, and that was really more of a collaborative thing. But I was a kid. I was sure. 18. I didn't really. Is that all you were? Yeah, our dad had just died, and so we started working on that record. Mm -hmm. We kind of went back to the drawing board. You know, I was a drummer for, eight, for well, at that point it was uh, 12 years. Yeah. And I taught myself how to play guitar wow. um, over that year that we, we started writing that album. And our dad had just died. I was kind of reeling from that. And I, I didn't really know what else to do. And so I did what millions of other teenage kids have done. And I just kind of like descended into music and guitar playing. Right. And learning that. And that's all I did. I had the guitar in my hand 10 hours a day. Wow. And, uh, and wrote that first record and stuff. But now... I, I'm collaborating less and less okay. as I find myself getting older and more selfish. Okay, collaborating is the second half of this conversation. I'm gonna, I want to come back to that in a minute. Okay. Now, Robert, you so I created a list here, and you can correct me. Some of the people you've worked with. Let's read off some names. There's Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band. There's YMT, which this room will probably appreciate. There's the big hit with Celine Dion. There's a a local, kind of a semi-legendary songwriter named Taylor Rhodes that I think some of Love you have Taylor. interacted oh, yeah. with. Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably hundred songs. Um, you've interacted with some people I've had on my show, namely Max Carl and Henry Gross. Tell me about what it's like collaborating with, and I'm going to assume some of these people had big personalities. Tell me what it's like collaborating with someone with a big personality. That's, that's a good question. Um, and... Um, I was very fortunate in, uh, when I started out. I started out as a drummer and a, and a lead singer. I didn't know any. I didn't know any better. I just that's what I did. But as I as I as I grew up, I uh, I learned how to taught myself again how to play guitar out of boredom. You know. But um, thirty percent more checks. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But uh, um, the the band really taught me how to get along with people. You know, it's collaborative sort of thing, and that's what I was I was really used to. You know, uh, I've, that was my environment when I grew up. And so, um, you know, uh, I was able to do that with like Peter Wolf. I mean, Peter had come off the success with the, with the Jay Gals band. And uh, Peter uh, was probably one of the most eccentric 
uh, people that, I, that, that I've ever worked with in my life. Sure. I, I can say that I, I honestly love the guy. Yeah. He's, he's very difficult. Very, I shouldn't say difficult, he's very demanding. But uh, just, just a true artist. I learned an awful lot from him. But then I go to work, I work with him, and then maybe the next next month or whatever, I'd be working with Carl Wilson of the Beast Boys. And you, you day and night as far as personality. I mean, Carl was one of the most sweetest, uh, humble, you know, giving guys and, and laid back guys in, in, in the world, very, very nurturing and stuff, where, where Peter was, you know, uh, just very, very um, um, he had, had a ton of energy, and it was just trying to find how to, how to, uh, you know, capture that and direct it in the right way. But uh, um, you know, for the most part, I mean, I, you know, the song with Celine, as Taylor and I wrote, um, that uh, you know, I've written quite a few songs like that that uh, an artist would do, like a one-off sort of thing. But you know, over my career, most of the time, whether it was like with, with uh, the Van Zant, with Johnny, his solo record, or the Brothers, or Skinner, the '38, or whatever, I, I I found myself really at home in in those type of environments, you know, um, with uh, you know, in, in a band sort of situation. Okay, so you're you're I mean, you covered all different kinds of genres, and you're okay. It, now, the reason I ask this is because I've heard it described in some ways as like a blind date. You know, like you're, you and you and Peter Wolf will say, or whatever, you're going to meet in a room and you're going to, like a couple of dogs, kind of sniff each other out and like, let's see if we, how we feel about each other. And then you, you know, you open up a little bit and play a couple chords and he opens up a little bit and sings a little, whatever. Is well, it kind of like that? What's well, it like? It, 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 was, it was a little different. I had, my publisher was in New York and he knew... Uh, somebody very close to Peter, and actually Taylor and I were uh, we were working on a like a uh, Hall and Oates on steroids sort of. I, I mean, we were actually kind of working towards a deal for ourselves. Okay. We just get along really well, and um, and so my publisher happened to play Peter Peter's guy a few things that, that we've been working on, and and uh, he played it for Peter, and Peter freaked out. It was like he came to town and. And uh, so I, I, I picked him up at the airport, and we went out and sat in a parking lot at, at, uh, at a Hills food store not far from Music Row until 3 o'clock in the morning playing songs, you know. And, uh, and he started picking, well, I want to do this one, I want to do that one. And the next thing we knew, the next year and a half of our life was Peter Wolf, literally, writing songs and producing. And I just want to emphasize this point to anyone who's listening. If you're a true music lover, imagine sitting in the driver's seat of your car and Peter Wolf is in the passenger seat, and you guys are listening to music that you're both jointly working on, deciding, yeah, I like that, I don't like that. Just imagine Peter Wolf sitting in your car. You know what I mean? And what's interesting is all these guys have stories like that. I just think that's fascinating. Um, Anthony, I want to come back to you. Now, this is something that I, I cover a lot on my podcast, is sort of the, the transitions into the times when things get a little lean. There's a, there's a Really hot moment when things are good, and then there's some time, there's some lean period too. Back to the strip club. <laughs> Back at the strip club. Yeah. Gunner at the strip club. By the airport. Call me Cinnamon. Cinnamon. That's a stripper name. <laughs> so I want to know, um, you know, do you feel like in those moments when, because let's be honest, a lot of people sit in their bedrooms and write songs. You four had an outlet to get those songs out into the world and get a chance for people to listen to them 
vote with their wallets. You had a moment, you know? Some of you are still, you're still having moments. Those moment, moments have gotten bigger or smaller over the years. When, when you're coming up on sort of the lean period, do you feel like you're, does your creative ju do your creative juices take a break as well? Do you ever feel sort of stifled, like, man, I got, I'm still full of great ideas, and I don't have an outlet to get those ideas in front of people. I know they would love them if they heard them. Have you ever experienced that feeling? Definitely, um, um, with the tour guys, um, you know, we owe everything to a guy named John Fry that ran the artist studios. He was kind of like a father figure of band, and he was the guy that took us in his office and you know, drew a pile on the wall and put one little tiny sliver in and said, okay, this is you and this is everybody else that's going to be, you know, digging around. And of course, we were ready to sign up right away. We were like, can we go play our original songs and play it in front of people and we're ready to share it? Um, your creative side never goes away. I mean, um, you do get frustrated, things happen, which we're talking about, you know, you're high on the mountaintop one minute and then you're kind of in the scary dark valley, you know, the next minute. Um, but you need that outlet as a creative person. Um, but I've definitely been there where, you know, you feel like you have uh, lost your voice. You know, yeah. you know I, they mentioned a minute ago about having a big corporate wheel behind you. You know, when you go from being on a major label to all of a sudden the phone stops ringing and your record's getting uh, shelved, it's kind of a scary moment in your life. You're questioning, you know, what you're doing. Um, and I kind of went home. When that happened to me, it was really weird. We had kind of done some really heavy, dark kind of material, and I think it was just us transitioning with how music was changing. We were kind of still trying to be our band and be true to ourselves, but we were kind of, we kind of feel that looming cloud over us that it could possibly end. And we always had a great time together. We never took it for granted. We were like, we couldn't believe we were getting signed and didn't go do music for a living. Sure, we just went the most of it. And, um, but, when it started to go away, I kind of got a phone call from a, from a guy out in LA and he said, man, it, you're, it's not a question if your record's gonna come out, it's, it's not gonna come out, it's gonna show. And I was having a heart attack. I was at home in Memphis and uh, I spent a bunch of time on Bill Street when I was at home and I got to know a lot of the singers and local musicians and stuff. And there was one guy named James Govan and he just bought a big run to Green Bean. Um, but he could sing like Otis Redding Al Green, he always had chicks around him all the time. He was smoking a same cigarette, having a shot of something. And I just looked up to him. I just loved his voice, everything about him. And I went and found him the day that I got the phone call. I got my Jeep and drove downtown and went to find him. And of course, he was sitting there, you know, in a booth with a bunch of chicks hanging out around him. And he was older than me, you know, and I kind of looked up to him. And I went in and I said, hey, man, I got some serious news. I, I don't think my record's going to come out. And, you know, I'm kind of having a hard time with this going on with my dude. I said, what do you think? What am I going to do, man? He said, you're going to keep singing. You're a singer, man. He kind of just gave me this, I don't know, a moment of clarity for a minute where he just kind of pat me on the back. I guess he had been through the waves a few times. He had had record deals and toured all over the world. And he was at home. He was playing with a band in Memphis. And at that moment, it just made me feel comfortable with the situation. And I just wanted to strip myself away from everything that I had done 
And I wanted to be a police singer all of a sudden. I just said, man, I'm just going to get my acoustic and I'm going to put it in my car and I'm freaking going to play every hole in the wall, you know, in the world, and I'm going to go play some old giant hurt. And, you know, I realized real fast when they called the police, when I started getting paid on that day. Uh, so I kind of started thinking maybe I better call this else. But um, I really, I don't know, I, I was inspired. And I think in the music industry, you get raped over the coals a lot. And I, and I talked to young kids, I kind of had that culture ingrained in me because of my mentors that I had that were there that kind of supported me. They were a springboard, you know, I could go in and whatever kind of crazy idea I was coming up with, they would, whatever they were doing, they would take 10 or 15 minutes out of their time just to sit and kind of walk me through it. And I wanted to be that for other people. And, um, you know, you get beat up, you get knocked around, but a lot of times I'll tell people just, to close their eyes and I'll play them some music. Like from my background, that John heard, or you know, something off Kiss Destroyer, or something off Physical Graffiti, or something that really just moved me as a person. And I tell them to think about their situation, how the music spoke to them. And I say, I want you to hold on to that. That fire, that passion, that feeling that you have, because you're gonna need it, because you're gonna get beat up. And um, it's the truth. But you never let go of that feeling. I mean, I feel the same way. I'm, it's crazy about music, and I love it. I'm a fan of it, and, and I need it as part of my life as much as I did the minute I sat down and started thinking I could put something together. I mean, thinking about it getting chill points. Right? It's just, I don't know, it's had such a profound effect on my life. I mean, it's just a part of who I am. And um, it's definitely, back to your question, it's very, very scary scary and dark. Yeah. You feel like you don't have that voice. Yeah. It never goes away. It's always there and your outlet is there. And you actually um, want to get better. It kind of starts, that fire starts getting in you. You're like, man, you know what? I'm just going to go kick the crap out of this. <laughs> you know, you kind of change your attitude. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to skip over you, Walter, because I have a different question for you. But Gunnar, I know you probably experienced some of this, too. First album comes out in 1990. What are you trying to say? Uh, give me a second here. I'll, I'll let me be a little more clear. So the first album comes out in 1990. Four top 40 hits. I think you sell two and a half million copies of that. Five. Forget. Goodness. Forgive me. Five million copies of After the Rain. Who's counting? Not me. Yeah. Gunner's not counting. And then it's a five-year gap before the next album comes out. Oh, a lot more happened than a five-year gap. Well, that, that's okay. what I mean. This we uh, you know talking about a you know a faucet of opportunity being shut off. What do you do? Uh, well, I mean, it's a we were in a pretty unique situation. We we actually were on the label that, uh, and we were out on tour at the time, enjoying the success of, of the record. The same label that realized they could actually save tons of money by signing records that were already finished by a small label called Sub Pop out of Seattle, and uh, David Geffen in all of his wisdom, decided to sign Nirvana on our label. Yeah. And so uh, it was actually the single largest paradigm shift in music industry history, and that includes the death of disco, sure. both of which were completely engineered by the industry. None of it was organic. Mm -hmm. All of it, all basically, with the death of disco, the five or six guys that really ran the industry, and by the way, there really are, it's kind of scary, but it's true. Yeah, um, They all got together and I said, man, Donna Summer wants to charge us a million bucks per record, and that's in 1970s money. You know, so they said, well, you know, I heard about this new movement out of England, and you give these guys a, a dime bag and a fifth of Jack, and they'll do whatever you want. They're doing something called punk, and 
doesn't cost anything. So that, that was that revolution. Sure. Um, but think about it. I mean, every, every, there wasn't a person in America that didn't own the Bee Gees record from Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. And uh, like the next week it seemed people were burning albums. Right. Sure. Same thing happened to us. Uh, Nelson was out there, uh, the last real uh, confidence rock band of that era. And we went from living on a prayer to uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit overnight. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you knew it wasn't organic when, you know, gosh, on a Wednesday, MTV's playing all of the music that a lot of us in here love. Mm -hmm. And then on Thursday, the Gap was carrying nothing but flannel and they weren't playing any of this. I mean, it, it really was engineered. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of good music that came from that, but for me, I couldn't relate to it as a human being because what my personal message has always been, including through my songs, has been a message of positivity. Mm -hmm. I never felt like anybody owed me. You know, um, I come from a family where we've all been treated as guilty until proven innocent for some weird reason. Yeah. And everybody thought that, you know, we had trust funds and leg ups and stuff. Our father was, I mean, he was really misjudged and really underrated unfairly when he was alive because he was just freaking beautiful. Right. And he was on a TV show, but it's important to note after he did Rio Bravo, he actually had a very conscious decision to make as to whether or not to go down the road of being a film actor. He was a fine film actor and it's an easier life. Yeah. or be a musician. And this is a guy who lived and died for rock and roll. He was playing 300 shows until the day he died. And he loved music. He happened to be, he was a musician who happened to be able to, to be a, an actor. Right. Not an actor who happened to make music. Sure. And I got to watch that growing up and I thought, man, that, that kind of sucks, that's unfair. And when my brother and I came out, I mean, shoot, man, a um, couple of things were, were lined up. We, There's a reason why we, we imaged ourselves the way we did. There was a lot of traffic out there. And we figured, man, someone zipping through MTV, which was the biggest radio station in the world at the time, right. you know, a kid's gonna give you a second, a second and a half maybe, before they go on to other, unless you catch their attention. Yeah. So our whole motto was, love us or hate us, you're gonna know who we are. And we did that, but unfortunately, the year before the whole Millie Vanilli scandal had happened. Yeah. So they see Matthew and Gunnar Nelson coming along, everybody thinks it's Millie Vanilla. Yeah. And we had to go for can't. They're too pretty to be as talented as It's packaged are. and it's, yeah. it's the record company, whatever they thought. Sure. So Matthew and I did what we always had done. Two acoustic guitars and all the priority three radio stations. Mm -hmm. Then all the P2s and then all the P1s. We worked our way up. We actually went to radio stations and performed live for them on air for about a year and a half before the record even came out. Wow. And we had to do that. Yeah. So when we did drop the record, the program directors weren't going to weren't going to just shit can it, they were actually sure. going to listen to it. And and this was great, we knocked it out of the park and um, you know, getting that call from that manager was was great. You know, you're the number one band on planet Earth this week. And it's like, man, that's awesome. But my first thought was, shit, now what? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been focused on it for so long right. <laughs> that I really had been guilty of not really enjoying the ride. Sure. And, uh, and then when the whole Nirvana thing happened, it was really interesting going from um, being a hero, becoming a zero from a hero overnight, sure. through no fault of your own. Sure. Um, but it kind of felt like the reverse of, you know, slogging it out in clubs like Madame Wong's West and Chinatown and the Central and and uh, and, and playing your way up the LA club scene and trying to get that break, and then don't, going and doing one spot on MTV like my brother and I did, and all of a sudden we were closing down shopping malls. But we were the same guys that we were the week before. Right. It can leave just as easily, but to your question, you know, the most important thing when you actually go through this, my father had a great statement that I loved. A career is nothing more than a series of comebacks. Mm. Wow, that's, yeah, yeah, that's profound. And, and he would know that, and, and life mm -hmm. is really that way too. Sure. 
no your kidding. reason your reason why you do what you do, no matter what it is you do, and we just happen to be songwriters. Mm -hmm. Our reason why we do what we do, it's stronger than money, it's stronger than fame, it's stronger than fan approval, uh, friend approval. Sure. Um, it's something that we have to do. Yeah. And unless you have something in your life, again, no matter what it is, sure. drives you, yeah. I can't imagine what a single day would feel like without not having a song wanting to come out of me and wanting to, to yeah. do that. Yeah. You know, I drive my poor wife crazy. You know, <laughs> I, you know I, we're late, we're constantly late for things. But she'll find me in a corner, yeah. sitting there humming a, an idea into my now my iPhone. And it has really nothing to do with, with whether or not people are going to hear it, a record company's going to get behind it. Uh, it's just something that's a part of me, and I know a part of the other fellows on this dais here. It's, it's, it's not what we do. This is who we are. Yeah. And that's the one thing that separates the music industry from any other business. The bean counters don't get it. Right. That's right. why they're able to strip mine someone's yeah. life in a second with a phone call. Guess right. what? We're not going to put out your record. And it's like, that's my life. Not right. only is it my life, mm -hmm. it's been my life my whole life. Sure. Mm -hmm. And to you, it's a financial decision. To me, it's my calling. Yeah. But it's in those moments that you do what you've always done. You pick up your guitar and you take those feelings and you hope, hopefully write a song that's going to yeah. connect with people. And maybe not, but it's going to make you feel better and it's cheaper than a shrink. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well said. Uh, okay, Walter, my question for you, Gunnar alluded to this sort of jumping or crossing genres. The reason I wanted to ask you this question in particular is that your first four albums come out in that Southern California singer-songwriter sort of vibe made during the with Stevie and Lindsay during the height of rumors and all this kind of stuff. And then I believe it's your fifth album, which I've been talking to a lot of people here. I think we're all fans of the Wild Exhibitions album. Oh, all right. Yes. Uh, it's, been, it's been really interesting when I've been telling people, a lot of people brought their, that's the copy, that's the album they brought for you to sign. I love it. It's a wonderful power pop record. Yeah. And granted, this is the period when people like Elvis Costello and Greg Kinn and The Knack are starting to kind of rule the roost. Did, um, you mentioned moving to Nashville for to be a part of the country music scene. Was this a conscious decision of you to think, you know, new wave and power pop is happening. I should, I need to pivot and adjust or else I'm going to be left behind. I suppose subconsciously you do think about that while you're in the flow of the trend of the world. Um, but I don't remember specifically trying to tailor it okay. as anything but more songs that I've written along the way. Good. And what Gunnar said was true. I mean, writing songs is something that a songwriter just has to do. I started when I was, well, I was 16 when I started writing songs. And it's never stopped. I mean, you're always seeing the world as, oh, well, there's a song, or, or you're feeling something. During my, uh, my divorce years, <laughs> my wife used to uh, complain that, well, why, you, should, you should go to therapy. Why don't you want to go to therapy? And it's like, well, because I'm dealing with this stuff constantly writing songs. And there's that movie Walk Hard, which has, it's kind of like the, uh, the Johnny Cash version of Spinal Tap. Sure. <laughs> but the, the best part is he, he comes off the road, and every time he comes off the road, his wife has another baby in her arms. And, and they're having an argument, and then you can see see him look off to the side, and she goes, 
don't you be writing no song while you're arguing with me. And, and it's so funny to me because it, it's something that actually does happen. But, but the, as far as the, uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel like that uh, Wild Exhibitions was much of a leap from what I had. Well, that's interesting. That's what I, I wanted to say. I think there's a lot to do with yeah. things, too. Okay. Um, after doing my first two albums with Lindsay and Stevie, the, uh, the regime in charge at Columbia changed, and the guy named Don Ellis, who was the A&R man who signed me there, had come. My third album's called Hi-Fi, and we recorded it in a house. We, we rented a Steven 16-track machine. We put it in, actually, the house that Stevie had just moved out of in the Hollywood Hills, and did it very much DIY, and uh, Don Ellis came in and said, yeah, well, this is great. This is just what you need. We don't want it to be too slick these days. It's like, you know, a little bit more organic, whatever. And then he was gone by the time the record was released, and this guy named Jack Crago was in charge. And I had a meeting with him, and he go, well, you know, I don't hear Stevie Lindsay on this record. Like, well, you know, you signed me. You didn't sign that. And uh, that was yeah. when I planted the seeds of getting off Columbia. And the album that he referred to, Wild Exhibitions, was on uh, Tom Petty's label, uh, Backstreet Records. And Danny Bramson was the president of that label. And he and I had, had a mission for one another. He had a mission to prove he could make a record succeed that wasn't a Tom Petty record. And I had a mission to prove that I wasn't just a crooner and that I was a rocker. <laughs> and I had this song called Full Moon Fire, which was so the single from that record. Um, I came up with this idea for the video that we uh, were able to do. Um, in writing the song, I felt like I was getting in touch with the part of me that comes out in the middle of the night, which I equated to a werewolf. And so it's kind of discovering the werewolf in our souls, the dark side of our soul that uh, we, we don't necessarily pay attention to. And in the video, I pick up my wife, we go to a movie, and at the movie I turn into a werewolf and run amok. Through, uh, through the Los Feliz area of Hollywood, <laughs> and then come back and turn back into the world. And you know, eight months later, Michael Jackson came out with Thriller. So, I mean, I'm not saying that he stole my video idea. But I think that is exactly <laughs> what you're saying, saying, Walter. If you look at those two, <laughs> yeah. you'll see there is a correlation. Of course, I can't dance like Michael could, but uh, he had a lot more money to spend. On yeah, video. no kidding. But uh, okay. I, I think as far as jumping genres, you know, the biggest jump in many ways was when Graham Parsons joined the Birds and turned a psychedelic rock band into a country rock band. And at that time, which was like 1968, the most radical thing that a rocker could do would be to really embrace country music without a tongue in your cheek. Uh, you know, the Beatles, of course, had Ringo singing some country songs, and but uh, it. It was a radical change at the time, and not a lot of people were ready for it. Flying Burrito Brothers was his band after that, and, and that sort of really set the template for what is now called Americana or Country Rock or All Country or yeah. whatever title they have for it. And I, another one of these fortunate stories of mine is that I uh, was good friends with Emmylou Harris, who had been playing in the Georgetown area where my band was playing in 1971, I guess it might have been. And Chris Hillman discovered her and told Graham, if you want to sing 
for the beautiful singer Pumsy and Lou. Yeah. And the night that he came, I was there. It was a club called Clyde's in Georgetown. And I think I think Graham got up and sang "I Saw the Light," and Emmy sang a little harmony on it. But after the set, they were talking and said, "Well, you know, we really need a place where we can try out our voices." And I said, "Well, my kitchen is just up the street. Come up to my house." So the next day, Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou sang for the first time in my kitchen, Again, and I was just the person there. And of course, today, if we had those phones that we have today yeah. in those days, this would be a major motion picture probably by now. But at that point, it's just my memory, and it was quite a thrill to. And he, Graham, in many ways, was my last idol as far as someone I looked up to in, in ways that were slightly unrealistic. And so when I met him on that day, he was amazingly sweet and amazingly, you know, profound, I guess, in a lot of ways. I asked him, who should I listen to to get in the country or whatever. But, uh, and then I got to see the, uh, the darker side of him when they were out on tour promoting their record, the Grievous Angel record. But, but um, you know, I had started writing Hearts on Fire with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. Really? Yeah, well, it was reference to heartburn and things like that. Oh, that, yeah, that okay. My, my good friend before. and collaborator, uh, Tom Guider, who uh, was the bass player in my band at that point, he said, I think this could be a real song. Why don't we uh, make it a little <laughs> bit more serious? So, Walk away from the acid reflux yeah. idea. So, and then it was a real commercial that Graham uh, liked it enough to want to record it on that album. And in fact, when they did that, after the sessions, Emmy Luke came back to town and uh, had a set of lyrics that Graham had written that he wanted me to write the music to. So I feel like I have the last Graham Parsons song in this song called Carolina yeah. Calypso that I did write the music to just about a week before he died. Fascinating. So, yeah, so it was crazy. Uh, okay, so Robert, my question for you, we, you and I were talking about this a minute ago and it's come up a little bit, the role of a producer in these situations. I mean, someone like Anthony writes a song that to, in his mind is sort of a, maybe a blues song, or, you know, Gunner's working on something on an acoustic guitar, but you take that to a producer and suddenly it becomes something different. Now, anyone who doesn't know, I gotta put in a plug, uh, Robert was the front man for this unfortunately short-lived rock band in the early 80s called RPM. And they only put out two albums, and the second one is called Phonogenic. And it's one of my favorites. And it was produced at Sarm Studios, which is Trevor Horn's studio. Uh, Trevor Horn of around the same time. Yes, 90125, um, ABC, The Lexicon of Love, Grace Jones, which is why I'm wearing a Grace Jones t-shirt. The Buggles, baby. The Buggles, absolutely. The Buggles, exactly, yeah. yeah. Video killed the radio star. So here's a, here's a producer with a very specific point of view. And at the time, his sound, his point of view, is super hot. And that's who Robert's working with. So tell me, but you have a different opinion about this. The producer is not always the one who's shaping the sound of these songs. What's been your experience with the producers? I mean, when, I, when I'm pitching, when I'm... If I'm well, when we were talking a minute ago, I was saying that a song is sometimes just bones. You've got the bones of the song, and then maybe the producer is in charge of making it what it is. But you disagreed with me. I think, I think if you... Yeah, I, I think nowadays, I mean, for not just nowadays, but for a long time, I, I think, you know, the way that I would always approach something and most of my co-writers, we, we would just try to spell it all out. You know, this is what's, what's in our heart, what's in our head, 
uh, and uh, and we had a good degree of success with that. I think you can't really assume that everybody's going to like get it. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody's going to be able to 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 you know play a. Uh, I'm working with a, a young girl right now from New Jersey uh, who's like uh, a blonde Amy Winehouse. I mean, she's just like unreal, right? And so we, we sit down with the acoustic guitar or whatever, and, and, but, um, you know, if, if I were to be producing, if, you know, I'm working on a, on a production thing with her, but, but if I were to, to be pitching her a song to another producer, uh, I would probably spend a, a, a good bit of time to like, you know, carve it out as to what my vision of the song was, you know, and, and that, that leave it to chance, you know. Yeah, and weren't you telling me earlier to get the demo as tight as it can possibly be so that if there's not a lot of guessing when it comes to the producer, the producer takes the demo as like the guide. This is what we have in mind for this song. Right. Yeah. There, there's, you know, there have been some times where, where I've been really pleasantly surprised, like, uh, for instance, like, song that Taylor and I wrote uh, for YNT, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, mm -hmm. and Kevin uh, Damish produced that, and Kevin did, you know, just an amazing job. Um, there are other times that we've gotten songs back, but actually I was, I was producing Peter. Uh, we were in the studio in Nashville, and my publisher had sent uh, a, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the, the mix of Where's Martin Now with Celine. And so, you know, obviously there's a lot of anticipation and we're getting at, oh, this is the first, you know, big release from her first American, you know, English speaking record, this is going to be big. And, and of course, the beginning of music is as long as we had at that time, we're all probably going like, oh yeah, right, we've heard that before a thousand times, right? And so we, we put, in, it was a cassette at the time, we put the cassette in the studio and listened to it. And I can see Peter and he's like, and he's like, and he just he just looked at me and shook my hand. He said, "Congratulations," you know. But but that was something that we worked on a demo for quite a while. Uh, and uh, and Chris Neal, who the producer on that hit, later became a good friend of mine. And I'm working with him. Uh, he took our ideas and just embellished them and took them to another level, sort of thing. But all the basic ideas and stuff was all laid out there. Background vocals, uh, even the. I, I produced the, the vocal on the girl that, that sang it, and, and Celine copped, literally, she probably would never do this now, but at the time she, she copped every ad-lib uh, on, on that record that I had worked with the, the singer on, you know, and producing a demo and stuff. So that, in my mind, edified, you know, that, that reinforced the fact, like, hey, do it upright, you yeah. know. And uh, I mean, there, there's certain people that you know. If I have a relationship with, and I know them, and they know me, and we work together, and, and I can give them a piano vocal demo or something rough guitar. But generally speaking, and even more so nowadays, it's you know just mm -hmm. and you've got to really spell it out. And, yeah. You know. And uh, well, uh, I think we're already almost out of time, which I had a feeling would happen. I've got like 20 more questions for each of you. Um, Seven minutes? Okay. What I want to do, and if you guys will commit to trying to be brief about it, I want to hear your, ta your tastiest, tastiest memory. I, just to bring a little bit of what I do on the hustle into this, I assume all four of you can make a living as musicians at this point. I mean, some of you have written some pretty big hits that probably keep the mailbox money coming along, but no? Gunner, you shake your head? 
Well, the, the industry has changed in the last 10 sure years. Sure yeah. I mean, 10 years ago, we would, we would give away the live shows to sell the records. Mm -hmm. The horses left the barn, music's free. Yeah. So now we, we give away the records, and we have been just to do the shows. It's all about live performance now. Yeah. And it's about going out and doing shows, and that's how a majority of us make our living, but it's actually kind of cool, because the one thing that's different from being a songwriter, producer, who's stuck in a studio all the time, and I love that part of the process, I really do. But there's nothing like getting out on the stage and singing a song and having people singing the words back to you that sure. you've written. It's just this connection that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's uh, you know it's cool. I mean, everybody up here also loves to perform, mm -hmm. and uh, and you and you got to go out go out there and do that. I know a lot of writers here in town, some really good friends of mine. Uh, Gary Burr, for example, has written more country number ones than most people in town. Incredibly talented writer. Better singer than most of the people who cut his tunes, mm -hmm. and it, it came to the point where he just said, "Look, the mailbox money is just not coming anymore." Interesting. And so he put together a band, and he's out on a tour called Blue Sky Riders. They're out on tour with Oh, Kenny sure. Yeah. Yeah, and well, that's that guy's he, your friend. Yeah. With Georgia, what's her name? With Georgia, his wife, yeah. Georgia Middleman, who's yeah. amazing. Um, they're, oh, they're, they're, interesting. They're absolutely brilliant. But yeah, you know, I mean, that was their that was their inspiration for going back out on the road. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention. Sure. They needed to pay the bills. Yeah. And the industry has changed. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, shoot, man, I mean, the people that I did business with were better at stealing money than I'll ever get at, at, at finding, <laughs> finding the money. So, Point of um, you know, I mean, we were one of those cliches. You know, we really were. You can go out and you can sell millions of records and still be broke, yeah. according to the accountant. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, just the way, that's just the way it is. But what I did was instead, when the whole Nirvana thing happened, I started my own label. And this is okay. when people weren't really doing that a lot. And I, I always kept my business cards whenever I went internationally and I met, you know, Watanabe-san from MCA and stuff like that, and we went out to, to get some food. I always kept this card. So when Geffen did their thing, they changed their direction and, and wished us off into the cornfield. They basically put us in the studio forever. It would have been embarrassing had they let us go to another label that was still doing our kind of music. Right. Um, and had we had a hit. So they basically just kind of kept us recording on records they never intended to really release. And, uh, and unfortunately, yeah, you were, you were right. You point out four years had gone by. Yeah. It wasn't for our lack of trying. Oh, I believe it. You know, John Kalaga was going through that phase where he was sending Aerosmith back to record whole records. Yeah. And that was just the thing. So a anyways, um, you know, we put our own label together and I called those same people on those business cards and said, well, you know, you obviously licensed the records from Geffen. Sure. How about doing it direct with us? And that's what kept us fed for 10 years. Wow. Just going out and doing that. that you hustle. Fun. You do what you, you have do. to do. You hustle. That's the name of my podcast. Yeah. Speaking of which, I want to invite Anthony and Gunner, since these two have already been on. Hopefully, at some point, we can I can honor you guys by having you as guests on my show too to kind of get deeper into your. I thought you were going to take us to dinner. Okay, I'll take you to dinner if you need. Right. Whatever you want. But yeah, I'd love to have you guys on sometimes so we can go deep on your on your individual story. Tell me your tastiest memory, Anthony. And we got to be quick about and it. This it's is just really hard. Um, I can't believe that happened to me moment. The, uh, I think it was hearing our music on the radio. The first time there was a DJ in Memphis, Malcolm Riker, who had a local zoning show. And the guitar player and I were cutting grass for a living. My mom was a real estate agent, so we were doing that. We were like, wouldn't it be crazy if our song got on the radio? And, uh, and the DJ actually started playing it for us. And um, we couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just the first time hearing it. Some of the music work and put a lot of yourself into it. That was pretty amazing. That's amazing. 
cool. Walter. I think I probably gave you one of them or a few of them there already. I remember. But uh, my friend, Fred Perry, who I worked with in the Brooklyn Cowboys, it's Richard Perry's brother, he came up with this wonderful saying about show business. It's the four stages of showbiz. Walter who? Get me Walter. Get me someone just like Walter. <laughs> Walter who? The <laughs> rest my case. I love that story. You know, what was no, this no. question again? My big tastiest memory. That I can't believe that happened to me moment. My wife is sitting in the audience. Uh, <laughs> okay, eight girls in a hot tub after selling out the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City. I'm from Salt Lake City. <laughs> but it's probably all morning girls. That was it. That was my I can retire moment. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I had uh, Johnny Vatos, the drummer of Oingo Boingo on, who are still huge in Salt Lake City, and he tells me Mormon girls are the best to party with. You would never know. Gunner can, can uh, my wife's confirm this. Mormon girl. <laughs> Not Mormon anymore? Yeah, okay. I get it. Um, all right, fun. Was one of, well, I'll, if I get you on my show, I have questions for you. Uh -oh. Robert. Um, I, I don't know if it's the, the uh, it's, it's not funny, but it was just, uh, just how everything kind of converges really quickly. And I was writing with, uh, with Donnie Van Zandt, the 38th Special, on her project. We got a writer's block on down in Jacksonville. So I said, let's just go out and take a drive. So we get in this car, we're driving around. I didn't know where the hell we were going. Next thing we know, we're back in the woods, we're near this lake, and he, he pulls over. And then we get out and there's this house that's all grown all grown over with weeds and vines and stuff. And it's just trashed. And, and I said, what's this? He says, well, this is Ronnie Van Zandt's, his brother Ronnie's last home. Right? And he had sold it to, uh, to uh, uh, Robert Nix, I believe, in my rhythm section. And they'd taken it back and it was just trashed. But anyway, we're, we were leaving. We were leaving there. And, you, you know, again, we had this writer's block. And as we're pulling out of the... the uh, the driveway, uh, I, I see the road sign, and the road sign said Brickyard Road. And I told Donnie, I said, there's there's our idea, right? Well, and, and so anyway, we shared that with Johnny, and then uh, we got together not long after that, and wrote Brickyard Road, it was, a, it was a big record for, for Johnny. And so, just how, you know, all those things come together at that one time. You know? Well, I hope uh, I hope everyone got something out of this. I, I just I think it's fascinating that these are four very talented people who've had some amazing things happen in their life, and uh, I hope they never forget that we care about them and we love them and what they do matters to us. So thank you guys and thanks everybody for listening.